Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and thank you for joining us today for Live Dharma Sunday. Please note that if you have called in to listen to today's broadcast, that all lines have been placed on mute to avoid background interference. If you're listening from any of our Bright Dawn sites, note that it is not necessary to call in. You may have to wait a second or two for the loading and buffering process to complete, but if there is still no audio, please refresh your page. For more information about Bright Dawn and its activities and links to our social media sites, please visit brightdawn.org. Once again, thank you for listening to Live Dharma Sunday and enjoy the talk. Welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for March 29th, 2020. Koyo Kubose here. So very glad you joined us today, 20 years ago. This is the anniversary date of my late father, Gyome, Reverend Gyome Kubose, his Memorial Day. 20 years ago. March 29, 2000. I remember going to St. Joseph's Hospital in Chicago. Uh, He had pneumonia. Before I, my sister had called me and told me, well, dad's cough is, you know, my mom and dad were living with my sister. She said, our dad's cough is getting a little worse, so I'm going to take him to the hospital. I said, okay. And I went over there and I was helping putting him in the car and uh, I heard his wet cough. Yeah, a real wet cough. But he looked fine. He felt fine. He acted just like he always did. I remember we went into the hospital and they were checking him in and they took a look at his lungs, the condition of his lungs, and the doctor said, you know, it was so severe. He said, gee, is is he having trouble? Isn't he having trouble breathing? And my sister said, well, look at him. You know, and he was just just as normal as can be, okay? Uh, but, yes, it was a serious condition. And uh, I also remember uh, we left him late that night. We went home, and... Uh, uh, well, he was 94 years old, and uh, I guess the precautionary thing that the hospital staff does is with such elderly patients who might not have their full uh, cognitive capacities to understand their situation, they had tied his wrists down to the uh, <clears throat> hospital bed rails, you know, with cloth, and you had about a foot uh, leeway, and he would raise his arm and then until he, it stretched the cloth. And he said, you know, and then he couldn't raise his arm more than a foot. And he'd look at that 
his arm being tied down, and you could tell he's looking at it and says, hey, what, what the heck? Hey, what's, what's this? What's with this? Uh, but anyway, we came back the next morning, and uh, one of the nurses said, you know, she, she that she had been with him the previous night and that he was... Uh, he sort of didn't like being there, and he and he tried to he informed me. He said, "I want to go home to my son's place." And she explained why you know he has to stay there and so forth. And that statement really kind of upset, bothered me that he was maybe in distress, saying, "Hey, I don't want to be here. <laughs> hey, what's going on? I, hey, let me go home to my son's place." Uh, and I thought it might have been a rough night for him. And I told my sister this, and she and right away she said, "No, that's not dad style. Uh, if he doesn't like what's going on, he'll express it. But then when it, it you can't do anything about it, he he accepts it, and uh, he'll say, "Well, okay, that's this is the way it is. I'll wait until morning, and then we'll see what's going on." You know. And I, then I was reminded, I said, yeah, that's right. That That is the way it is. And that gave me great comfort. Well, uh, I want to mention that uh, in Japanese culture and maybe the East in general, uh, there is a phrase that I think is rather misleading, and it's called ancestor worship. In the East, uh, Perhaps elders are held more worthy of respect than in the Western culture where the youth and strength and independence uh, values are, are, are held up and, you know, pragmatism and you know, maybe the older generation cannot contribute as productively as when they were younger uh, and they could be seen as a burden for the younger generation. Whereas in the East, not only is the the elder generation venerated and respected, but after they pass away, uh, uh, they're not forgotten. There's no attitude of, okay, that was, you know, death is not a very pleasant thing. Let's just sweep it away and go forward. In the East, I think worship is a misleading word, ancestor worship. It's really appreciation to not forget uh, the reality of what others did for us, okay? Whether they meant to or not, that's not, not, that's not the point, okay? But what do we receive? Well, you know, all that we are is a result of our past experiences and influences and conditions, okay? There's a big difference between when we think about causality, we, we say cause and condition. In the, in the West, we forget the and conditions. We think the cause is our direct action to, okay, I made this happen. The reality is there's a lot of other conditions. We could call them indirect conditions, direct causes, okay? Uh, some of them involved uh, just the nature and the physical things. 
but the influence of other lives, okay, known and unknown, our parents, our grandparents, and beyond, you know, uh, and to acknowledge, to be more mindful of this reality. Huh? In a sense, we could call it our one's karma. Karma is a, there's karmic influences that we we produce ourselves by our actions. And then we receive the karmic influences of our family, you know, which we didn't have any say in what family we're going to be born into, but, you know, we recognize it. Well, because I was born into this family, it makes a difference than if I was born into the Kennedy or Rockefeller family or in the ghetto. Okay. But I just happened to be born into this family, and it is a big part of how I was raised, how I came to be, what I did, what I'm going to do, and everything. Okay. Then you got uh, we might call societal karma. It's a broader karma. It says, "Well, I was born in America. Well, that's going to make a big difference than if you were born into the Middle East, or what language you speak, what culture, what values you hold, and all this." So karma is, uh, you know, in a lot of different contexts. But the one that's the most impactful to us directly or that we can experience directly is that of our parents uh, and our grandparents. It's about as far as it goes in terms of direct experience. Not many of us can remember, you know, impactful experiences with our great-grandparents, although it's there indirectly because they influence their children and their children the way they are, influence their children to us, to me. Okay? It's there, even though it's indirect. I don't know anything about it. But I acknowledge that I am the product of all this. It, it, it has to, to take those kind of teachings to heart, has to make oneself the more humble the more grateful and aren't those the spiritual virtues that what life is all about well okay that's pretty good today's guest to give us a dharma glimpse is josh san he's part of our lm12 group and he has an interesting dharma glimpse to share with us josh san Hi, my name is Josh Lovejoy, and the title of my Dharma glimpse is The Satanic Panic. So I was listening to a podcast series recently about the Satanic Panic that took place in the 1980s and 1990s. Specifically, uh, the podcast was focused on a situation that occurred in Martinsville, Saskatchewan, in Canada, uh, that was known as the Martinsville Nightmare. But the situation in Martinsville was mirrored uh, mirrored in stories across North America during that time period. Uh, In Martinsville, uh, which is a very small town in in rural Saskatoon, you had one family who originally alleged that their young daughter was sexually abused at a popular home-run daycare in the town. And we found out decades later that this original allegation and also one that was lodged a few years before that might have been true. Uh, we don't really know for sure, uh, yes or no, but very well might have. But 
is the local police at the time started to investigate the case. They started to interview all the children that went to the daycare and word quickly spread about the investigation. And that investigation started to take on an entire life of its own. Soon you had child after child started telling stories of abuse and not just sexual abuse, but quote unquote, satanic ritual abuse. And by the end of the investigation, you had 12 people, including five police officers that were brought up on over 100 criminal charges. And they were all thought to be part of the secret Brotherhood of the Ram. Now, it sounds horrible, but the problem with this is that it's almost certain that nearly any of it ever took place. The facts show that most of the children's testimony literally could not have happened. You had countless stories that were told of children being killed, but there was no missing children. You had story after story of physical abuse that was so brutal that it would be impossible for it to take place without lasting, devastating injuries and hospitalizations. But none of the children ever had a scratch on them. And all these things supposedly took place in a uh, quote-unquote devil church that was eventually determined to be this backyard barn that was nowhere near the daycare center. And despite all these horrific crimes supposedly taking place there, there wasn't one shred of physical evidence within that barn. And in fact, that's actually how the police officers end up getting implicated because everyone in this town became so convinced that these things must have taken place that they decided the only explanation for the complete and utter lack of evidence must be that it was, it was done by somebody that really knew what they was doing, really knew what they were doing, really knew how to cover things up. Uh, must be a professional and therefore law enforcement must have been involved. So over time, the question of, you know, sort of fast forwarding here, the question of why the children claimed all these things that didn't happen uh, became pretty clear as, as sort of cooler heads prevailed and uh, people from outside of the town started taking over the investigation and looking, looking at it. Um, it became clear that inadvertently these kids were questioned uh, completely inappropriately, with completely inappropriate techniques, I should say, um, that ended up implanting false memories and rewarding the kids for saying what the adults wanted to hear. These kids are young kids. They want to be outside playing, not questioned by police officers for hours and hours. And so when they eventually start to realize that if they say these terrible things happened, they can be done and, and go about, go back to playing, that lots of times is what happens. But then the question becomes, what led the adults to believe this was happening and what led them to influence the children in such a manner? And the answer, I think, is simple. It's fear. You had innocent people who had their, their lives upended. Some of them even were sent to prison. The children were artificially traumatized by an abuse that never even took place for the most part. And you had an entire community that still seems to suffer to this day from a form of group PTSD from it. And it's all because of fear. Fear is extraordinarily powerful. I felt that power firsthand as, as many people have. I have an anxiety disorder. I can literally convince myself of things that have no reality whatsoever, simply out of fear. And so to me, it's no wonder that when that power is multiplied between a large group of people, an entire community, uh, mass panic can ensue. 
stories like Martinsville happened all throughout North America during the time period of satanic panic. Uh, they're shockingly similar, in fact. And yet, despite thousands, literally thousands of accusations of these hideous crimes and murders, to this day, there's almost not one shred of evidence, physical evidence, forensic evidence, that any of them ever took place. So fear's bad enough when it controls one person, but when it multiplies in a culture, in, an, in a town, in a city, in a country, it can have an exponential effect that can be devastating. And I think we can see this today in the coronavirus pandemic. There's a legitimate problem and danger for sure. Please don't, don't get me wrong. You know, just like there was possibly some actual abuse that took place originally in the daycare center in Martinsville. But just because there's an actual legitimate problem doesn't mean we can't exacerbate that problem with fear and with mass fear. And it wasn't long after COVID-19 hit our shores in this country that people started doing things like irrationally hoarding, hoarding groceries. We've all seen the memes of an elderly woman staring deflated at empty store shelves. Our nation's eldest are the most susceptible to the danger from this virus, and yet hoarding is likely hurting them the most since they have less ability to brave the gauntlet of our, our ravaged stores right now. We've seen stockpiling of masks and other medical supplies lead to shortages for doctors and nurses that need them in order to, to actually fight the virus. It's actually making fighting the virus more difficult and potentially creating more at-risk patients. I've even heard reports of family pets being dropped off at animal shelters out of a paranoia, despite the fact that there's, there's no evidence whatsoever that we have that they pose any sort of risk, that your pets pose any sort of risk to the spread of the virus. And of course, we've seen the ugly face of racism start to show itself as people look for a culprit that doesn't look like themselves. And all these things, they didn't come from COVID-19. They didn't come from the coronavirus. They came from ourselves. They came from fear. So what do we do about fear? Well, when we look at the sutras, the, the personification of Mara in the various sutras can, it can represent a lot of things, but fear is certainly a chief element, if not or a result. And we see many examples in the canon where Mara attempts to influence Shakyamuni without being recognized, essentially fear having an effect without the affected realizing the cause. So what does the Buddha do in all of these circumstances? He simply recognizes Mara for what he is and he calls him out by name. Many Western Dharma teachers have presented these stories as the Buddha saying, quote unquote, I see you Mara, and then inviting him to, to join and having tea together. However you wanna look at those stories, the point is once, as soon as that takes place, as soon as the Buddha recognizes Mara, Mara vanishes. Once the fear is recognized for what it is, accepted, and given the appropriate space, it tends to disappear. And in fact, Mara disappears because he was never real to begin with. When Shakyamuni reaches enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, Mara famously appears to him and attempts to make him second-guess himself, asking on what authority he's able to become a Buddha. And Shakyamuni's response is simply to touch the earth, because the earth is real. And he calls upon that reality to awaken him rather than being beholden to a demon named Mara that was only created in his mind. Our mind can create many demons from fear, 
whether they're named Mara or Satan or the zombie apocalypse. Maybe the best way we can fight mass fear and panic in our society today is simply to make sure to call it out whenever we see it, to help others see clearly when Mara has blinded them. This might in fact be the best way we can help the world's crisis right now, reminding everyone around us to take action based on the threat that's real, not the fear that our minds create. And certainly there is a very real threat, but that's what we need to focus on and not the, not the additional threat that we're creating out of fear in our minds. And individually, you know, the news, today's news can be overwhelming. I mean, it's all we read about. Um, but I find it helpful to remind myself occasionally if I start to get overwhelmed as I'm reading that, to just remind myself, I see you, Mara. And it's amazing how quickly, even as I'm saying it right now, how quickly a smile can return to my lips when I do. But, you know, the Dharma always adapts to different cultures and times. So maybe this phrase needs updating, right? Maybe instead of just, I see you, Mara, we should start thinking about other options. Maybe, what's up, Mara? Or, I got you, Mara. Or we could go with, Mara's in the house. Or, howdy, Mara. How's it hanging, Mara? Or, uh, or maybe, why, hello there, Mara. Or I think my personal favorite, Mara, what's shaking, bacon? Thank you for listening. Yeah, very, very good. Uh, making friends uh, uh, well with your enemy I suppose or with what you fear um, bring it out into the light uh, uh, and this is a very well, I don't know if you call it ironic or very paradoxical or very uh in, in psychological language, you see, fear is very powerful and hard to get rid of because you don't confront your fears. If you, do, if you always avoid it and you see that the fear has no actual objective uh, reality behind it, it will never extinguish. It will never get weaker. Huh? Because, for example, if you're afraid of heights, you're not going to go up to a high place. Huh? You're going to avoid high places. So the fear of heights is going to stay strong. But if, through skillful means, I suppose you could say, you go with a friend uh, who's knowledgeable a little bit, and he says, well, let's go to the first floor, take a look around. Let's go have some ice cream at that store on the first floor of this building. And you know, next week, hey, they they got a good movie theater on the second floor. Let's go take a look. So you could see how, uh, in various ways, one could confront fear. Uh, <clears throat> this is an interesting, what sometimes is called. Uh, <clears throat> Well, this is a more extreme example, but one that sticks in my mind because it's so dramatic. It's called implosive therapy, by a, originated by a man named Stemfel. And uh, implosion means 
in an internal explosion as opposed to an explosion. You're talking about an implosion. And it's called implosive therapy because it's based on the example I just gave about, you know, never confronting your fears. Uh, and it says that the, uh, the counselor or therapist's job is to help the client experience and safely navigate his fears in a very skillful way. Okay. Um, if you're feared of, if you're scared of crowds or, you know, and so forth, well, you, you start gradually and so forth. If you're afraid of snakes, well, you, you're, you're approached one that's in a glass cage, okay? Things like this. So uh, sometimes it's very difficult to create the, the objective external situational factors directly. So the, the therapist might use descriptive imagery in a safe context, like the therapist's office, lying down, eyes closed, and the therapist says, well, let's imagine, you know. And if the therapist is skillful in his adjectives and his imagery, he could describe a situation. Okay? Maybe a soldier is scared of getting shot in battle and, you know, he had a traumatic experience. So maybe the, uh, the therapist might describe a coming battle very vividly. Say, hey, okay, let's pretend you're here. And we're getting ready. The enemy's coming. You know, you're in your foxhole, and so forth. Um, if a person is uh, very phobic, has a phobia about dirtiness and, and uh, uncleanliness, okay, and he can't even hardly, yeah, you know, he's so scared of germs and all this. Well, you might start with a. An image of a wastebasket. He says, well, go up to the wastebasket, take a look inside, see what's in there. In a gradual, kind of creative way, using imagery. Um, so if you could make friends with Mara, okay, say, hey, hi, hi. How you doing, Mara? <laughs> you know? You could see how that could... <clears throat> I don't know what you call it, extinguish or even strengthen the your skills at confronting, dealing with, okay, maybe through humor, through all kinds of creative techniques. Okay. And one very basic way that was emphasized in the Dharma glimpse is naming it. Name it and claim it. You know? If you make your part of the fear is that it is of the unknown. And if you could make that your enemy visible in front of you, talking sort of is along that line of that process. Whereas you get it out of your head where you can't really see it, and, you, and your words describe it, 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 then it's in front of you. And when you see it, you say, hey, you know, I could deal with that. Oh, that's not so bad. Okay? Friends try to do this too. They'll represent it and make it so that you could see it. Okay? It rather than your imagination. Um, 
very, very good, you know. The Buddha, uh, he was probably a master psychologist. He was probably a master philosopher, okay. He could have went into those professions, but he became a spiritual teacher. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, that's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, hey, hey, keep going, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you.